A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Yes, I'm trying on my new sexy voice. Actually, uh, I think I'm getting the cold that everybody else seems to be sharing right now. So, that uh, means I get to exchange my voice for a slightly deeper model. But uh, thanks again for joining in. Welcome to a program that uh, is going to do its very best to brainwash you into thinking for yourself. Yep, yep, I might as well just lay the cards on the table. My goal here is to take over the world and leave it alone. Okay, actually, I don't really want to take over the world. What I want to do is encourage people like you to think as clearly and independently as possible. And that means you don't have to believe anything that I share with you. In fact, I hope you do question it. I hope that you prove it out. Make sure that it actually holds water. But I don't ask you to take my word for it. This is a time where the most critical thing we can do is to think clearly and independently. And we've got our work cut out for us because we have a lot of news organizations whose job is to keep us from seeing the truth. So if you're waiting for someone to hand you the truth, here you go. Take good care of it. It's not going to happen. You are going to have to climb that mountain hand over hand, rock over rock, until you can uh, find the truth and uh, find it for yourself. But there's something kind of satisfying in knowing that you can trust yourself to, to discern between fact and fiction. At any rate, I'm glad you're here. I've got some articles that I hope will stimulate some thought today and maybe even <clears throat> get your heart working a little bit in terms of, you know, what matters most. Case in point, I found uh, Michael Herman's Substack here a couple of months ago. And uh, and the guy's a very prolific writer. I think I get, generally I get two emails from him daily. In other words, he's submitting at least two articles a day on his Substack. And they are always Always worthwhile. This one crossed my uh, my inbox over the weekend. And it's titled, Let Us Pray. And I thought this was really interesting because he makes a very concise case that uh, we have lost light of a couple of words and concepts that are just foreign in our daily lives today. And that is, what is solemn? What is sacred? You just don't hear that much. Here's how Michael Herman explains it. He says, I've been thinking about the law of unintended consequences of late and wondering if it perhaps has played quite a role in how our society has evolved in just my own short lifetime. Now, I think he's he's probably in his late 60s. He says, when I use the term evolved, I mean declined. Now, Michael Herman says, I was born into a world that was extremely influenced by religion, a world where religion was an extreme part of my early life. And he says, I don't think I'm alone. I think religion was a much bigger influence 60 years ago in all of our lives than it is today. And he says, I was born into a world where people held things solemn, held things sacred. Now, there are two words and concepts that seem to be foreign to our daily lives today. Solemn, sacred, two words that have disappeared from our vocabulary. I want to pause for just a moment and think about what he's saying there. I think he's right. And I would use this as... uh, as mild evidence that that seems to be the direction that we're going. We don't care so much about what's solemn. We don't care about what's sacred. When a politician is campaigning, 
when they're reporting back to you know the the people that uh, that they are trying to get to elect them what are the metrics they use to define what a successful leader what a successful politician i am it's always something material well, I brought back this program and I brought this many jobs and I brought this building and these funds and this law and whatnot. But they never talk about things like what is sacred or what is solemn. And I'm not saying that, you know, we all have to walk around in this grim-faced state of solemnity everywhere we go. Just that these are not the things by which we measure goodness anymore. Now, Michael Herman says, look, he attended Catholic school growing up. Religion was part of his daily life. He says this sense of good versus evil was uh, omnipresent. And of course, this was something he was taught by, you know, his parents, his, his elders, the priests, the nuns, the coaches, the den mothers, the scout leaders. He says there was a sense of right and wrong. There was a concept of sin living one's life by the tenets of the Ten Commandments, guided by biblical principles and parables. That was very mainstream not so long ago in America, but now the idea of living a moral life, you know, it's, it's just not there. I think when most of us were kids, you know, living a moral life, uh, hung over our daily existence, you know, if you were, especially if you were raised in a, and schooled in a Catholic school, probably like a sort of Damocles, punishment lurking around every corner, sin. He talks about sin. I watched a sin morphed from a looming horror to a nagging conscience and then finally today into some antiquated notion, a relic from the past. The word conjures a world of black and white movies, an idea whose time has passed. So Michael Herman says, I may have decided as I developed from childhood into teen years and then into adulthood to do the wrong thing, to choose the wrong path, and at times to want to do the wrong things purposefully with full intention, but I always knew. He says, I always knew what I was doing was wrong. I made those decisions willfully, and I knew concretely I was straying from a moral, from a moral life. And you know why? He says, it's because my early existence was steeped in religion. Now, interestingly, he says, now, along the way, I fell away from the church, as so many of us did. Somewhere along the line, the message became monotonous. We questioned as generations before us had never questioned. And when we questioned, he says, we didn't like the answers we received, so we became disillusioned. And then the sins of the Catholic Church didn't help. It only reinforced and validated our questioning. We became emboldened in our desire to move further away from organized religion and even to raise our children with a bit of healthy distance from the daily involvement of church, of religion, of faith. Now, he's not saying this was a good thing necessarily. He's just saying somewhere along the line, we became more secular and we fell away not just from the church itself, not just from faith itself, more importantly, we fell away from those moral teachings, the value, the valuable added benefits that religion reinforces of things like reflection, self-analysis, concepts like solemnity, reverence, holding some things sacred in our lives. We meant to remove the structure of religion, he says, the actual mechanism that was the church, the requirements of mass, outdated practices that felt artificial or outmoded. We found the idea that only the church could bestow upon us absolutions or sacraments ridiculous. We saw priests as mere men, mere mortals, as capable of sin and failing as we were. Who were they to have this magical power to absolve? Who were they to consecrate our union? 
So our out of our lives went formal religion, but unfortunately, he says, when we threw out the religion, out went so much more. We threw out the baby, the bathwater, and the tub itself. And his point is, you see it everywhere in society today. Think about it. Theft is excused as a kind of social redress. Abortion went from safe, legal, and rare to actually being celebrated by women today as they go to TikTok to tell the world their story and take some sick pride in what they've done, as if having an abortion is some feminist badge of honor and not the taking of another life. Ethics have become muddled or ignored completely. Cheating scandals erupt in sports. No one blinks an eye. Younger generations today have abandoned the connection between intimacy and relationship. In fact, they speak casually about body count, not realizing that casual physical relations leads to feeling hollow, empty, unfulfilled. It can cause emotional issues about self-worth and personal value. One feels such a greater sense of spiritual fulfillment rather, if the intimacy experienced is with someone you actually care about and you want to be a part of your life. I mean, isn't this controversial? Isn't this just, I mean, how, how could he come up with such a concept? And yet, I think it's absolutely true. He says, every direction I glance, I see a moral failing, a social decline, a societal decline, rather, a complete moral failing. And he says, I have to believe it's somehow connected to our becoming a more secular society and having moved away from religion. Michael says, I feel like I'm standing with one foot in two different worlds. I'm not a fan of organized religion, he says, but the moral clarity they bring to our lives and the manners and concepts they instill in our lives serve us both individually and collectively. They make us better people and a better people. You get that distinction? He says, I no, lo- no longer wanted the duties of attending mass, listening to sermons from single men, morality hanging over all decisions and actions as if a dark cloud. But... He says, in removing oneself from organized religion, you lose a connection to valuable benefits, ideas, and concepts. He says, a solemn review of present actions, a reverence for others, these are things that can inform our world for the better. And he says, I think that as we've, as we've collectively slid away from religion in our society, we see the results. They're right there in front of us every day. Then he asks people to comment. So I'll include a link in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I think you should take a look at Michael Herman's essay here. Maybe spend a few minutes, if you're so inclined, and ask yourself, what do I consider sacred? What would I approach with solemnness? I'll bet you there are a few things, even if you consider yourself generally an irreligious person. The question is, do you know what those things are? Because you got to know before you can stand for them. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Thanks again for taking a chance and just, you know, hearing what I have to say. I don't have all the answers. I am not a smart person. I'm not good looking. I'm not talented. Not sure where I was going with this, but uh, bottom line is, I'm just a guy who is doing his best to find my way home and to help others who are in the process of finding their way home as well. And I'm encouraging everybody within the sound of my voice to, uh, to champion those things which are sound and good and to reject those things which are unsound. 
And I'm not insisting you have to agree with me on everything. I'm just saying think about it and do not agree to stuff that you haven't really thought through. Because there are people out there who just want control. They just want you and I to just click our heels and just, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, I will do whatever you want. Yes, sir, whatever, you know, whatever, you know, pronouns they happen to be using. Now, having said that, I'm very grateful for minds like Barry Brownstein. He's one of my favorite writers. And the insight that he offers on foundational matters. In fact, I've got a great article from him from his Substack. The mindset that puts liberty at risk. And this one just spoke to me. The subtitle here says, When we build our identities around our grievances, we play into the hands of illiberal politicians. Now stop for just a second and think. How many political movements or organizations or just groups today have grievance as the number one thing that they're all about? I mean, there's a lot. And that's, that's kind of what makes politics such a dangerous thing. It's not just a matter of, well, we just want good government. No, it's like we've got grievance. We need reparations. We need someone to punish them and do, do unto them before they can do unto us. That seems to pretty well describe, you know, the, the mindset that goes into why people vote. Well, if we don't, you know, they're going to use the system against us. So it's better that we use it against them first and harder. Anyway, sounds like a pretty good way to, uh, <laughs> to get yourself painted into a corner. Nonetheless, Barry Brownstein recently recorded an AIER podcast with his friend Kate Wand, and the topic was grievances, something that we all know something about. This is what Kate had to say. She said, sometimes we like to say we woke up on the wrong side of the bed. We're immediately flooded with thoughts about things we don't want to do today, about the disagreement we had with our partner the night before, the dirty pile of dishes certainly still piled up in the kitchen, which we now will have to clean because nobody else is going to do it. Oh boy, she's speaking my language here. We begrudgingly drag our feet into the kitchen and start washing the dishes loudly, murmuring under our breath and clanging the pots and pans loudly enough to disturb everyone else in the household. They have to know how hard we are working. Everyone else is lazy, uncaring, and don't appreciate everything we do for them. When we start our days with a victim mindset, she says, we are certain that we are the biggest victim around and that everyone and everything outside of us is to blame. And we all do this sometimes. Self-awareness is a choice, a practice, and it unlocks the key of choice we have over our circumstances and how much our grievances affect our mindset. So we can easily turn our day around by doing what needs to be done without complaining externally or internally and taking responsibility for our thoughts and feelings, realizing they come from within and not without. But then Kate asks these crucial questions. But what happens when every day is a bad day? When every day is dependent on what others around us do. When that extends to the world around us, to the cards we've been dealt, to the systems that oppress us because of our gender, race, background, ethnicity, or any other identity card we base our self-concept on. Now, you can actually listen to this podcast episode and, and hear this discussion between Barry Brownstein and Kate Wand, and I hope you will. But Barry asks, he says, before listening to what Kate and I think about these questions that she's asking, he says, please take five minutes to read my recent essay on the subject. And again, if you haven't subscribed to his Mind Shift essays, you are really missing out on, on a great resource and a great tool for helping to, you know, firm up and, and sharpen up your own thinking. So Barry Brownstein 
starts with a quote from F.A. Hayek from the Constitution of Liberty, which says, Man learns by the disappointment of expectations. And he says, some of us, Hayek could have added, resist learning. Despite having their expectations constantly dashed, you know, there, there are those who, uh, who will continue to have a tough time learning. He gives, uh, he gives the example of Seinfeld. How they hold on to grievances and they never learn. Holding on to grievances leaves little space in our mind to commit to the timeless values that facilitate human cooperation. So he brings up a Seinfeld episode, Bizarro Jerry. Elaine has hung out with doppelgangers of Jared, of George and Jerry and Kramer. She explains to Jerry why she made these new friends, telling him, Kevin and his friends are nice people. They do good things. They read. Jerry says, I read? Books, Jerry. Oh, big deal. Elaine says, look, I can't spend the rest of my life in this stinking apartment every t- coming into this par- apartment every 10 minutes to pour over the excruciating minutia of every single daily event. Now, the minutia that Elaine is referring to here is the endless recital of petty resentments and grievances. And the scene fades out with Jerry protesting, why not? Like yesterday, I went to the bank to make a deposit and the teller gave me this look. So, in other words, the characters are focusing on how much am I getting? Can I give even less and still get more? That's the hidden mindset that they share. And a mindset of looking for grievances stopped the characters from building meaningful lives. For one episode, Elaine considered a better way. She had a temporary change of heart. But then the force field of her old habits was too strong. Now, this isn't to make you not like, you know, episodes of Seinfeld, but you got to understand, as Barry says, on each Seinfeld episode, it's filled with the most minute yet cherished grievances. A grievance might begin with a slight tinge of annoyance then morph into a, morph into a full-blown grievance. If we didn't recognize our own behavior, however exaggerated by the characters, the show wouldn't be as funny and timeless as it is. Now, so what, you might say. I don't read AIER for TV reviews and self-help. Fine. But Barry says, what if it turns out that our grievances are setting the stage for socialism and the destruction of liberty? Oh, now that's got your attention. He says, maybe you're getting a little exasperated. You might be thinking, come on, my grievances are not against society. My grievances are against people in my life. And if I told you my story, I'm sure you would agree I'm justified. Well, listen to this advice. Holding on to grievances, we build our self-concept around being against something, a person, a group, or another nation. In other words, collectively, our grievances can be exploited to create tribal hatred. And the really dangerous thing is that hatred can last for centuries. Yale law professor Amy Chua wrote, Vote-seeking demagogues find that the best way to mobilize popular support is not by offering rational policy proposals, but by appealing to ethnic identity, stoking historical grievances, and exploiting group fear and anger. Now, she's referring to the developing world. What she described is increasingly the political experience in the United States. This is something that college students are getting on a daily basis. They don't have to attend a Soviet-era-sponsored conference of grievances in North Korea. Every day on college campuses is Festivus. It's the centerpiece of the airing of grievances. Now, there's a lot to this article, and I hope that you will take the time to look at it. Here's the takeaway I would like you to consider. Barry Brownstein points out, Human flourishing requires our attention to be for something. A better life for ourselves or our children or others, but not against something or someone. 
In fact, he says, notice when you're holding on to a grievance, how many minor and major irritations and grievances occupy your thinking throughout the day. What do we sacrifice when our attention is centered on grievances? In fact, he says, heed Hayek's warning, a decent society cannot survive when a critical mass of people is focused on grievances. Living for grievances means risking our humanity and our liberty. Now, look, I'm, I'm really not preaching at you and telling you, so therefore, look in that mirror and tell yourself to stop being so grievance-driven. You may need that advice, but I'm telling you, I'm the one who needs it even more than you do. And that is something that I do consciously try to apply myself to every day is not to be enemy-driven, grievance-driven, victim-driven in my thinking. Some days it's easier than others. But I definitely agree with Barry Brownstein on this one. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, I got to comment on this just because this is the weirdest thing I've ever seen, and I'm... I'm not a person who likes bugs, spiders especially. Man, when the spiders start coming inside, which they've been doing here lately now that the weather's turning colder, I do not like that. I cannot look upon a spider with the least degree of allowance, and, you know, I just, I don't. If they're in my living space, sorry, buddy, it's you or me, squish. (laughs) My kids are gentle. They'll carry them outside. I don't. I just squish them. But if a spider's outside, I leave them alone. I just, I guess what I'm saying is bugs bother me, but I'm not bothered by all of them. And I don't know what it is this year. I've never seen so many ladybugs as I'm looking, I'm looking around my studio right now. And I, I literally have a ladybug crawling on my studio light to, Oh, looks like the one that was on the end of my fly swatter has flown off. I don't squish the ladybugs. Okay. I want you to know, I love the ladybugs and I believe they eat harmful bugs like aphids and so forth. But I, I've never experienced Seeing so many ladybugs come inside and then they've just kind of congregated. They'll pick a corner, you know, up, up on the ceiling and just kind of kind of hang. And I'm, I'm probably going to have to take the vacuum to them and just, you know, gently suck them up. And we'll see who survives and they can go back outside. But what a weird thing. And for a guy who doesn't like bugs, it's, it's you know, mildly traumatic. So I've been wanting to share this one for a little while. This uh, Actually, this article was just written... Over the weekend, this is from Nick Gillespie for Reason Magazine, but he nails something that I have been observing now for a long, long time. Do you realize the Simpsons cartoon has been going for, what, 35 years now or close to it? It's an insanely long-running series, and I, I had, I think all my DVDs are pretty scratched up now. My kids grew up watching seasons two through about 10, and... I would argue these are probably the funniest seasons of The Simpsons. Brilliant writing. I mean, some cutting social commentary. But now this show has strangled itself into irrelevance. Once it was kind of a subversive place where you could go and you could see everybody getting lampooned. Not so much anymore. Nick Gillespie explains how the the show now traffics in the cliches that it used to mock so effectively. Nick Gillespie says, to paraphrase Marx, sitcoms repeat themselves, first as satire, then as farce, or maybe just as self-parody. But he says, that's the case with The Simpsons. 
America's longest-running longest scripted TV series, the longest-running animated show, and the longest-running sitcom. Sitcom, rather. Once an engagingly genial yet subversive part of American popular culture, whose creator, Matt Groening, sharpened his talents in alternative comics. The Simpsons soldiers on in its 35th season as a pale, tired imitation of its earlier self, one that no longer delights as much as it disappoints. And he says it's almost certainly asking for too much for The Simpsons or any other creative offering to keep a sharp edge for this long. But the show's latest controversy provides an object lesson in how pedantic and tedious American culture can become. So in a recent episode, goofball patriarch Homer announces he will no longer enact one of the show's longest-running gags, which involves strangling his son Bart whenever the kid pisses him off, which is often. So when meeting a new neighbor who remarks on his strong handshake, Homer says to his wife, See, Marge, strangling the boy is paid off. Just kidding, I don't do that anymore. Times have changed. Now, as the pop culture site IGN notes, Bart, or Homer, hasn't in fact strangled Bart on screen since the 2019-2020 season. By the way, there's a link here for a supercut video of Homer strangling Bart for 10 minutes straight. Probably worth your time. Yes, Nick says the times have changed, and he says the minute I read about the new episode, I thought back to a particularly memorable installment from the show's second season. In Itchy, Scratchy, and Marge, Marge leads a successful campaign to clean up TV after realizing how violent, ultra-violent, her kid's favorite cartoon, Itchy and Scratchy, is. In a typical episode, Field of Screams, Itchy the Mouse runs over Scratchy the Cat with a thresher and then uses the decapitated head to play catch with his son, parodying a scene from the syrupy baseball movie Field of Dreams. But the inciting incident for Marge comes when baby Maggie imitates what she sees on the small screen and whacks Homer on the head with a mallet. Marge's protests succeed spectacularly, and she gets the makers of Itchy and Scratchy, whose theme song promises they fight and bite, they fight and bite and fight, 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 bite, 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 bite. Instead, they create wholesome episodes, like the one titled Porch Pals. It's basically just these these characters, these Tom and Jerry characters, instead of fighting, they're just sitting there sipping lemonade. I love you. I love you. It's so nauseatingly sweet and good for you that Springfield's kids turn off their TVs and go outside to play and start to thrive like never before. A wry commentary on persistent fears that fantasy violence and fantasy sex on the boob tube deformed children's moral lives. Now, in its earlier days, you got to remember The Simpsons wasn't just simply funny. Along with another of other, along with a number of other shows like Beavis and Butthead and Mystery Science Theater 3000, it helped to teach us all how to consume pop culture critically by commenting directly and indirectly on the recurring conceits and tropes of TV and critical discussion about the medium. Now, Nick Gillespie points out this was no small matter. The country was in the midst of an explosion of cultural offerings that freaked out tastemakers and gatekeepers. As the double whammy of cable TV and the internet rolled out across the nation, powerful people were convinced that most of us, but especially children, were incapable of distinguishing between basic cable and basic reality. What we needed more than ever was a guardian class that would regulate and restrict the music we listened to, the TV and the movies watched, and the websites we searched. As the University of Tulsa's Jolly uh, Jensen told Reason, the guardian class attitude proceeds from an assumption that art is an instrument like medicine or a toxin that can be injected into us and transform us. 
Now, if you believe that, you are going to do whatever you can to make sure only the right sort of messages are being sent. Just like TV sets or radios, Nick says, I summarized the view in 1996, we are dumb receivers that simply transmit whatever's broadcast to us. We don't look at movie screens, we are movie screens, and Hollywood merely projects morality, good, bad, or indifferent, onto us. Now, he says that sort of thinking has a long and storied lineage and it's been applied in various ways to novels, movies, comic books, rock and roll, other forms of mass entertainment. And the idea regularly migrates to new forms of popular culture, video games, social media, smartphones, and gets dressed up in scientific-sounding language. So he says it's hard to recapture the moral and social panic caused by the appearance of The Simpsons and the Fox network on which it appeared. Fox became the fourth over-the-air broadcast network in late 1986, known for its edgy content and gross-out humor. Conservatives and liberals alike attacked The Simpsons and the network's other shows like Married with Children as portents of the end that all of all that was good and decent in American society. Blue Noses raged at the sight of Bart wearing a t-shirt with Underachiever emblazoned on it, with some school districts actually banning the gear. Republican Bill Bennett and Democrat Joe Lieberman, two thankfully mostly forgotten but once powerful figures, joined forces to denounce such anti-social offerings by handing out Silver Sewer Awards, trashing Fox TV and Rupert Murdoch for vulgarizing the airwaves. They were joined by such figures as Senator Bob Dole and Attorney General Janet Reno and First Lady Hillary Clinton, who were convinced that fantasy violence and promiscuous sex scenes on TV caused those same problems in the real world. In fact, Reno explicitly threatened TV networks with censorship, averring that the regulation of violence is constitutionally permissible. While senators pushed legislation that would have made cable TV, cable networks rather, subject to FCC content regulations. Pundits had predicted an endless rise in mayhem if shows like The Simpsons, which had a famous gag where a character kept shouting, will someone please think of the children, weren't reined in. So, Nick says such fears dispersed, mostly, in the absence of plausible research showing much of a correlation, much less anything hinting at causation between watching sex and violence on TV and then perpetrating it in the real world. The long and virtually uninterrupted decline in crime that began in the mid-1990s, right as increasingly violent and sexually explicit TV, internet content, and video games were becoming ubiquitous, helped to minimize calls for more G-rated content and tighter restrictions on who could consume what. Which, of course, isn't to say that they went away. In 2005, for example, Hillary Clinton, by then a senator from New York, declared that the video game Grand Theft Auto encourages children to have sex with prostitutes and then murder them while calling for a federal investigation of how games were rated and sold. Oh, boy. So, over the past decade or so, calls for kinder, gentler content seems driven less by worries that, say, depictions of violence will cause problems in the real world, and more about the pain and suffering that bad representations of particular types of characters might cause among some viewers. In fact, the last time The Simpsons was widely discussed was back in 2017, when comedian Hari Kondabolu called out the show for its supposedly one-dimensional representation of South Asians in the documentary The Problem with Apu. Now, as a result... The actor who voiced the Quickie Mart owner, Apu, Hank Azaria, stopped doing the character. A few years later, during the riots and protests in the wake of the police killing of George Floyd, the producers of The Simpsons said they would no longer have white actors voice non-white characters. Oh, now however well-intentioned those gestures might be, it's clearly done nothing to bring viewers back to The Simpsons. 
We'll come back to this article just the other side of our break. But if you're a Simpsons fan, he's got a lot to work with here. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Just a quick uh, final note here on... uh, Nick Gillespie's article about how The Simpsons strangled itself into irrelevance. And if you remember in 2017, well, we're not going to have the character of a poo anymore. He was the Quickie Mart uh, clerk. Thank you. Come again. One of the great characters, by the way. And and here's the funny thing about it. when they wrote about, well, you know, this uh, this is terrible. They're stereotyping this this poor East Indian guy. And, oh, this is just a terrible thing. No, it was not racist. It was evidence of a guy who is living the American dream at a very, you know, accepted and normal part of the community, even if he sells old food <laughs> creatively or, and gets stuck up all the time by, by Snake and his gang. Anyway, one final note here. Um, However well-intentioned those uh, those gestures may be, well, we won't have any white actors voice any black characters. Sorry, Dr. Hibbert. Harry Shearer won't be voicing you anymore. However well-intentioned that may be, it's clear it's, it's not brought any viewers back to The Simpsons. In its first few seasons, it averaged well over 20 million viewers per episode. This is what's sad. In the most recent complete season, they were getting about a tenth of that. Now, Itchy and Scratchy and Marge ends with Marge renouncing paternalistic censorship after a movement inspired by her own activism launches a campaign to put pants on Michelangelo's David. 33 years later, the show that once challenged the censorial zeitgeist now seems all too much a part of it. I would agree. That was one of the things that made that show so funny was the fact that they they would make fun of pop culture and some of the current tropes One of my favorites is Mr. Burns answers somebody's question on a college campus and immediately some kid comes up, you are literally Hitler. It's like, wow, ripped from the headlines. Here we go. Anyway, it's a great article. Please take take a moment to take a look at it and see what you think. Two articles that I want to share with you in the remaining moments. Uh, This is the article of the day. And I know this is asking a lot. You'll hear me talk about freedom. I was, it's funny. I was looking back at one of uh, one of the articles I used to write for for St. George News, and and I think I was actually writing about sanctity. You know, and why you know it's it's not so much that uh, that gay marriage is what's threatening marriage. You know, in, in America, it's the fact that we've we've turned loose of the concept of sanctity. Very few people remember what it is or why it matters. Nonetheless, it uh, it reminded me that you know. We may talk about freedom. Somebody had, had poked out, well, oh, look, here's another column from Hyde. Blah, blah, freedom, blah, 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 sanctity, blah, blah. Okay, I probably get hung up on this, but if you haven't taken the time to ponder the measure of true freedom, that is something worth doing. In fact, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and just float this out there. Maybe I'm dead wrong to say this. I don't think you can live as a free individual if you don't at least have some concept of what your freedom is. So if you want to observe or see how a nation's freedom can be observed and how it includes the people on the margins, how would you know if you're dealing with a free society? Well, this article by Michael J. Sutton, this is from uh, the Brownstone Institute. So this is good stuff. He says, if you look at the people who are in the margins, if you look at the people who are you know, the outcasts or the ones who are not part of the favored, the elite, you know, the well-connected. 
how much freedom do they have? It's kind of like there's an old saying that uh, my old program director at my first full-time radio job used to tell me, and, and this, this is harsh, but I believe it is true. He says a radio station only sounds as good as its worst commercial. So if you have a commercial that uh, has really crappy production quality, that's the best your radio station is going to sound. All the award-winning you know, commercials, that's great. But the benchmark of how good you sound is your worst sounding commercial. Okay, I'm going to say the same kind of thing, you know, would apply here in the sense that your freedom can be measured by how freely the most unprivileged people in your society live. Anyway, Michael Sutton does a marvelous job of explaining this. It is worth your time. To, uh, to take a little closer look at, at what he talks about. And if you haven't thought about, uh, well, what exactly is true freedom? Might be worth knowing. You know, just on the off chance you have to stand up for it someday. All right, one final article here. This is uh, Brandon Smith's latest, published over the weekend. The Globalist Vision, 15-Minute Prison Cities and the End of Private Property. Now, I love the observation he makes here. He says, as a general rule, he says, I find that whenever the public scrutinizes any particular agenda being promoted by governments and globalists, their first response is to act indignant, much like a narcissist would do when they're up to no good and they get caught. How dare you question their intentions and suggest they might be nefarious? It's like the guy getting caught cheating. How dare you look into my phone? (laughs) How dare you catch me doing something? How dare you suggest they're anything other than loving and benevolent? Well, Brandon says, our leaders have only ever wanted the best for us, right? They only want our lives to become safer, more comfortable, more convenient. This is what truly motivates your average elitist, right? Well, he says, obviously history tells a far different story. And he says, it boggles my mind when anyone tries to argue that things are different today compared to 100 years ago, 300 years ago, or even 1,000 years ago. He's making the case. There is nothing new under the sun. There will always be good there will always be tyrants attempting to gain more power. And those tyrants will always lie to the public, claiming they're good people with our best interests at heart. But when that doesn't work and the citizenry remains skeptical, the tyrants go on the attack. This is when they will accuse the public of conspiracy theory, and it's meant to shock, to mock rather, and shame free thinkers into silence. You don't want to stand out, right? Why risk being ostracized from society? Why risk becoming a meme? Well, Brandon says this tactic is rooted in the notion that the corporate media and government officials represent the mainstream, and therefore they represent society, and the majority represents reality. Now, none of this is true, of course. Only facts matter. Sophistry is meaningless. Opinions are meaningless. Truth should be the goal, and if it's not someone's goal, then they must be a purveyor of lies and should not be taken seriously. There are only two paths to take, and there is no in-between. Now, he says, I'll admit, there is some value to the conspiracy theory accusation because whenever the establishment uses it, it's a sure sign that you are too close to the target and they are getting nervous. Now, they could simply try to outline any evidence they might have to prove your position is wrong, but they don't really do that. Instead of debating your arguments and evidence, they try to undermine you as a valid critic and inoculate the public against your ideas before people ever get a chance to hear them. Now, that's the behavior of villains, not caring and benevolent leaders. He says, I mentioned this dynamic 
because there is one agenda above all others that is aggressively defended by the establishment media. And anyone who remotely questions it is automatically persecuted as a conspiracy nut or denier. He says, of course, I'm talking about the climate change agenda. Now, he says, I have thoroughly debunked the idea of man-made climate change in previous articles. By the way, he links to those. So he says, I'm not going to spend time on that here, but I do want to examine the end goal of climate change policies. The ultimate solution, which is not to save the planet, but to dominate the populace. He says the names used for climate change, uh, the climate change reset vary, but it's often referred to by globalists and the UN as Agenda 2030 or Sustainable Development Goals. Now, these programs were a facade of environmentalism, but they're all rooted in economics. That is to say, all climate change efforts exist to destroy industry and trade and establish a government-corporate partnership to dominate production. So climate change is a Trojan horse to introduce authoritarianism. And he says, I believe one of the most important aspects for globalists for Agenda 2030 is something they call the 15-minute city, a project involving hundreds of city mayors from across the U.S., Europe, and Asia working closely with groups like the World Economic Forum. Now, any mention of this idea in a negative light and the media erupts with anger as well as mockery if, as if it's not a real issue worthy of debate. Now, the establishment paints an interesting picture of 15-minute cities. A utopian future in which everything you need is just a short walk away and private transportation is superfluous or banned. You might even live in a mega complex, much like a giant mall where you also work. You could spend months within one square mile of space, never having to leave for anything. Now, it's no mistake that this idea was pushed hard during the pandemic lockdowns. Right? The public was awash in fear propaganda over a virus with a 99.8% survival rate. That fear made the unthinkable idea of staying at home all the time suddenly thinkable. Media pundits continue to call the connection between the COVID lockdowns and climate lockdowns a conspiracy theory. Problem is, the idea is openly admitted in UN and WEF white papers. Now, there is much, much more to this article, but I'm going to let you figure this one out for yourself. It's in today's show notes for November 13th, 2023 at the BrianHydeShow.com. Bottom line is these 15-minute cities are billed as decentralized communities, but they are the exact opposite. They are utterly centralized like a hamster cage where you are the pet. Yeah, that doesn't sound like something I'd like to be a part of. Thank you very much. And thanks again for tuning in the show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.